you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. If you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verse 14 to 7, verse 1. It's our Bible reading for this morning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Harry. And uh, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good to see you all. Let's, uh, if you hadn't realised it, we come to controversy now. In, uh, in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, there's some, there's some difficult things that in that passage that we just had read to us this morning. Uh, that can't, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers and come out from them and be separate are things that historically have been controversial and they're still controversial and we'll look at why in just a moment, but this is God's word and there's stuff that we really need to hear. So let's pray and ask now that as we, we open God's words that we would have attitudes of submission before God and his words and, and hearts that are wanting to receive from him this morning. So let's do it. Father, we come this morning and we are so thankful that you dwell in the midst of your people. We're thankful that where two or more are gathered in your name, that Lord Jesus, you're here in the midst. And we believe that to be true this morning, that you are here in the midst as you were so long ago, that you are working in the midst of our community, that you are transforming us as individuals and as a people. This is your work. We can't do it, but we come to you in confidence and in boldness and in faith. And we pray that now as we look at this letter, this holy scripture given to us for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, that these things would happen in our midst now for your glory's sake, but also because we need it so desperately. So we ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus and God's people said, one loud voice, amen. Oh, well done, thank you. <laughs> well, there is controversy. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons, partly because sometimes you're probably aware, as I am, that these or this passage of Scripture has been taken to what you would say is an extreme. Um, so, for example, uh, our neighbours, and I can safely share this because they will never hear this, but they're exclusive brethren. And so even though we are, are both Christians and I think would agree on many things, um, they have a complete and utter barrier between us and them because in their view, they have to come out and be separate. So they only fellowship with people within their own small church 
community. Um, or you might think of another example, which is more culturally separate, which is the Amish or the, the Hutterites, uh, people who uh, look at the world, look at the scriptures and say, be separate from them, don't be unequally yoked. And so they preserve a complete distinction between the way they live and engage and the culture and the people around them. That's one reason it can be controversial because we see some what can seem to be pretty strong responses to this passage. But another reason, and I think this is the reason it's more controversial, at least for me, this is hard to speak on, right? I find this hard to speak on this morning because when it talks about do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it sounds judgmental, doesn't it? It sounds like it's very arrogant. Like It sounds like that as we approach it on the surface, that it's somehow saying that, that Christians are better than other people, so we need to be separate because we're better than other people. And um, it feels like we're saying to you, you, others, you're unworthy, you're, you're inferior. And we kind of wrestle with saying, well, how would this approach fit with the ministry of Jesus, who clearly hung out in culture and clearly hung out in situations with people that were, were not believers? He engaged so there's controversy both because of the extremes and because of what the text seems to say. So, so this morning, let's look at this passage in Scripture and let's come with open minds um, and let's look at what is Paul saying? What's the command that the Holy Spirit is giving through Paul? Um, then let's look at, which is important to often ask, what, what are the reasons for the command? Why is he giving the command? Uh, let's look at the promises that come with the command. And then finally, let's look at the implications. That's is what is this command given in Second Corinthians two thousand years ago mean for you and for me today in Geelong? So, firstly, the command itself in chapter six: Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this word for unequally yoked comes actually from the Old Testament. It's from an Old Testament command not to yoke a donkey and an ox together. And the reason for this is that it's painful for both of them. So uh, you've got an ox, which is far bigger than, than a donkey. If you yoke them together at the plow, they are unequally yoked and it puts pressure and pain on both animals. And so there's a command that says, don't be unequally yoked. Now, Paul uses this command and he applies it to the church. He says, do not be unequally yoked like that with unbelievers. Uh, the term unbelievers is, is someone who is not a Christian. And uh, immediately we can think, okay, so what is the context to which he is writing that? What, why is he saying do not be unequally yoked? Who, what would be the situations he'd be referring to? And as you think, I, I would suspect that probably the first one that comes to your mind in, in our context would be marriage and romantic relationships. Is that being unequally yoked a Christian and a non-Christian in marriage. Well, uh, only a few hours ago, yesterday afternoon, I stood right here. In fact, I probably stood about here under this nice flowery thing. And uh, there was uh, Jed and Alicia, two young adults in our church community. And they were standing right in front of me. And it, it actually, as you go through the wedding service, it's just so incredibly clear that that the two people are going to be emotionally and spiritually and physically and financially and relationally yoked together for the rest of their lives. As they make that promises, that's what's happening. And yes, I think that is a valid understanding of do not be unequally yoked. A Christian and a non-Christian 
are, are two people who are, are pulling in different directions, so that is, yes, that's unequally yoked. And it's important to note here that um, Paul makes it very clear that while, in other passages, while Christians are only to marry Christians, there are times um, when he speaks about when perhaps there's a non-Christian, both, both partners are not Christians, one of them becomes a believer, and Paul's got some um, concessions I suppose, for that situation, and actually says the Christian shouldn't, shouldn't walk away. Uh, so there are concessions to that, um, but it also is very clear that voluntarily, being unequally yoked does apply to a romantic or, or marriage relationship. But it's not, I think, um, limited to that only. So in the context in which Paul wrote, uh, it could be also applied to business relationships, now, especially in the Old Testament, sorry, the New Testament, the first century church to which this is, this is written, often if you're, in a, if you're a business associate with another person, that actually meant that you were involved in some way in the temple worship. Um, so if you, were, if you were a business partner with an unbeliever, there were sacrifices to be made to the pagan gods, and, and that was part of the business process. Does that apply to us today? I think that's one of those, those areas that are, are something to, to discern what being unequally yoked in business could, could look like or may not look like. Um, interestingly, for, the, for the, the people, the commentators, the, the experts on, on this text, um, overwhelmingly, they actually talk about that Paul's immediate context in this letter to 2 Corinthians helps us to understand who he really has in mind when he speaks about unequally yoked. And the context is, as we've gone through 2 Corinthians, it's actually people who, who call themselves Christians and are in the church but are teaching things that are false to the gospel, uh, the super apostles, remember these guys, constantly criticizing Paul and his ministry, saying it's all about this and it's all about that. And, and, and most of the commentators say that, that Paul probably has them at the forefront of his mind, people who claim the name of Christ but are teaching and behaving in a way that's corrupting the gospel. He's saying, don't be unequally yoked with them, be separate from them. So that is the command, do not be unequally yoked, but it is important here to really highlight what Paul is not saying, because it can be very easy to take, do not be unequally yoked, and, and I think take it to a place that the scripture doesn't. We have to look at the, the scripture as a whole and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? And, and um, particularly in how Christians should relate to those who are not Christians, how believers should relate to those unbelievers. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul is dealing with this exact issue, actually. So let, let me quote his first letter, chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he says, listen to this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, you know, I wrote this and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't associate with sexually immoral people in the world because his point is you would have to leave the world and that's bad. Because Jesus says, I'm calling you not to leave the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, Jesus speaks about uh, in his teaching that we're to be salt and salt has to be in the meat in order to preserve the meat and flavor the meat. And so Paul's saying, I'm not saying you have to leave the world right. Uh, don't, if, if, you, if, you, if you could only associate with sexually moral people, then you're going to have to be in a tight little huddle, and that's not what I'm saying. He's a, he, he explains what he is saying. He's saying, 
I'm telling you, don't be associated with those people who say they are Christians, but live unrepentant, immoral lifestyles. Don't associate with them. Don't even eat with them, he says. But that's not to apply to the way that Christians live with unbelievers in the world. Um, Christians are acting as salt. Salt makes things better. Christians need to live in the world to seek to make this world a better place for everyone at one level. So why then, that's the command, why then does Paul say we're not to be unequally yoked? Why? And this is where, look, I'm going to take the text as it is. It's hard to stomach. What are the reasons? Well, I don't think Paul would dispute that Christians are naturally not attracted to being unequally yoked with people who are not Christians. Because a Christian person and a non-Christian person has an awful lot of things in common. Uh, We're all created in the image of God. Uh, We all have value, every human being. And we live in the world together. Unbelievers and believers, we still live in the same world. And if, if, the, if the weather is cold, we all get cold. If the weather floods, we all get flooded. Um, if, if things are going well economically, we all benefit from that. We're, we're in the same boat together. And you've only, got to, yeah, you've only got to ask what do Christians have in common with non-Christians by asking yourself, okay, you've got a Christian young woman who meets a non-believing, non-Christian young man who's tall and dark and handsome or whatever he is, is there going to be a natural attraction? Probably yes, because we have a lot in common in one level. But this is where it gets difficult, I think, and where it can seem to really, what Paul's saying here, when we actually look at it, 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 it can be hard to, hard to digest. Because Paul says, do not be unequally yoked because on the, matter, on the matter that really, on the level that really matters, on the fundamental level of who you are as a person, Christians and non-Christians have nothing in common. See why that's hard? And he says to actually be unequally yoked, a Christian with an, an unbeliever, is to actually be unfair to both. It's to cause pain to both. And let's look at his reason here. Verse 14, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So he's saying believers have become the righteousness of God through the gospel. He's just been, the last few chapters, he's been saying that that Christ who knew no sin is made sin for us so that we, Christians, might become the righteousness of God. It's, that's an incredible reality. Jack was, was sharing some of that, motivating him to, to share this news on the street. It's, it's, it's saying believers have the righteousness of, the God, of God through the news about Jesus, which makes us God's very righteousness. And this is not just a matter, I think sometimes even Christians can fall into this line. You say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm a Hindu and I believe but, 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 this about God. Or I'm a Buddhist, but, 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 or I'm an atheist, I believe that. And, and I'm a Christian and I believe, but, 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 you know. Where, and, and it's really kind of a, you know, you, you just, you choose from different religious options and it's, it's, that's what it is. N- not, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It ontologically changes you. Big word, impressed. Ontologically means in your essence, in your being, who you are at the fundamental level. The Bible insists that when an unbeliever meets the Lord Jesus Christ, they become a new person, right? 
that ontologically at who you are, your, your deepest level, you change irrevocably, completely, eternally because the Spirit of God comes to live within you. You change. And it, he's just talked about what it means. He says, in the old, the old person is gone, the new person has come. You're a new creation. And that is the reality of the Christian person. If you are a Christian person, you haven't just believed a couple of things about God that happen to be true. You're new. You're forever new on the inside. You are completely different. And his point is that this is not true of someone who's an unbeliever. An unbelieving person who hasn't received the goodness of Jesus Christ and been transformed, you are still in your sins, Paul would say. You're still the old person. And his point is, you're the new. They're the old. What do they have in common? Nothing. And he goes on. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? Once again, this is confronting, isn't it? He's saying the unbeliever is, is in the light. There's, sorry, the believer is in the light. Um, he, he says, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who is in me is not in darkness. And when we come to know the amazing news of Jesus Christ, the light of God blazes inside of our hearts. It shines into our hearts and it exposes our darkness, let's be honest. We're a new person in Christ, but the light of Christ shines in and we go, wow, there's some things that are still dark and need to be exposed to the light. But we are in the light as he is in the light. Scripture says. If you're a Christian, the light comes and you are drawn into the light more and more, as in 2 Corinthians he's been saying that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze on the light himself, Jesus. That's true of a Christian. We're drawn to the light. We are in the light. But he says, what partnership has, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And, and this is not a suggestion that Christians are somehow better that we're in the light. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It, it, Paul is speaking about just last chapter. Remember, he's saying that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelieving people so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. They're, they're blinded. There's a, there's a spiritual blindness at the depth of an unbelieving person. It's not that they're less intelligent. I think, honestly, unbelievers generally are more intelligent than us. It's not that they're somehow not as good looking as we are. In fact, that's often not true. You know, we're all in the same boat. The difference is not that Christians are better, but they've been, we have been exposed to the light of the gospel of Jesus. We're in the light because he's come and taken us from the darkness. But Paul's point is, they're still in the darkness. Don't be unequally Yoked. And he goes, he goes on and he, he keeps saying, and then, then he's really explicit. He says, what accord has Christ with Belial? That's offensive. He's saying, what accord does Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, have with Belial, which is another name for Satan, Lucifer, the devil? And he's, the implication of his point is that if you are in the light and you've been made the righteousness of God, you are with Christ if you are in the darkness, if you are lawless, if you have not received the, the, the light of Christ in your life, then you're not only in the darkness, but you're under the control of the evil one. There's a very sharp distinction. And Paul's point is, 
how can you be unequally yoked? You are so different on every level that matters. And, and he, he just keeps heaping this on. I think he, he wants us to really see. He, he says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the, the, the answer to his question he's expecting is nothing. So what's the portion of you, if you're a Christian here this morning, what's the portion you will receive or you receive now and for eternity? Your, your portion in, in life is Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're a Christian. You've got him now. That's your portion here. But what's your portion for all eternity? When this life fades and your body breaks down or, or Jesus returns, the Bible insists that your portion for all eternity is none other than the presence and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ ad finitum. That's your portion. That's your inheritance. That's what is yours now and is coming to you. What's the portion for the unbeliever? Well, here it's not Christ, is it? What's their portion? It's this world. It's the things they experience and touch and taste and get and, get and relation. That's the portion here. And what's their portion for all eternity? It's a separation from Jesus Christ, isn't it? As long as they remain in that condition, they will not be with Christ for all eternity. They will be in what the Bible calls hell. Paul's point is, don't be unequally yoked. You are so fundamentally different. You're going different directions. You, you are different ontologically in who you are. You're different in terms of your perceptions of light and darkness. Don't be unequally yoked. It's not fair to either of you. And he finishes at verse 16. What is agreement has the temple of God? with idols. True belief, false belief. And that no matter how much, common, much in common that Corinthian people would have thought that they had with people that they wanted to be unequally yoked with, no matter how much you and I might think we have in common with unbelievers, and we have a lot in common at one level, at what really matters, the most fundamental level, a Christian and a non-Christian has nothing in common. So don't be unequally yoked. So we looked at the command, do not be unequally yoked. The reason for the command, at their core, unbelievers and believers are irreconcilably different. Now, thirdly, the promises that come with the command. Uh, in verses 16 to 18 in your Bible, I, I had no idea until the commentators told me this, uh, Paul quotes from seven different passages in the Old Testament, he puts them into one, one quotation. They come from Isaiah and Psalms and, and all sorts of different places. But um, the quotation ex expands here the negative command in verse 14. Remember the negative command, do not be unequally yoked. Now um, it gives a, a positive command, verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's drawn from Isaiah God's people must, be not, must not be yoked with unbelievers, but instead have to go out and be separate from them, touching nothing that is unclean. Now, this comes with an incredible series of promises. Uh, let's look at them for a moment. Verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Think about it for a moment, the context in which Paul writes, that Herod's temple in Jerusalem is still standing. And if you had the opportunity at that time, we, we can read historical accounts, and, and you stood on the Mount of Olives and you gazed at Herod's temple, it glittered in the sun, it was full of marble, it was blindingly beautiful, it was immense in its structures, you can still see parts of the retaining wall today, huge blocks of stone. 
It was an impressive edifice. And it wasn't just impressive, this was the place where God dwelled, right? This, this is the place where God dwelled with his people. And Paul, the Orthodox Jewish rabbi, says, ah, we are the temple. That was very, very controversial language because the temple was still standing when he wrote this. He says, we are the temple of God. And then he goes on to say, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people, says the Lord. So you don't need to go to a temple, which is a good thing because it's destroyed now mostly. We're the temple of the living God and God dwells in his temple. God who created the vastness of the universe lives inside, lives with, lives through his people. And verse 17 expands that. He says, then I will welcome you. I'll welcome you. God will hold out his arms, welcome us into his presence. He says, more than that, I'll be a father to you. You should be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. There's a, a promise of God's tenderness and his care, not only his presence in his temple, but his fatherly care. For me, this, this reminds me overwhelmingly of Jesus' wonderful parable of the prodigal son or the, the loving father or the two sons. You know the parable. This reminds me of, of that, that moment when the prodigal son who's been scorning and, and wasting away the inheritance of his father, he comes back and, and to his surprise, the father's waiting for him. You know the story. And then the father hitches up his, his robes and he does something so undignified. He, he starts running down the road to meet his son and he throws his arms around him. And there's, there's that intimacy of a father's love, a father's presence, a father's concern. I'll be your father. You'll be my children. Then I'll welcome you. But there's a conditional element here, isn't there? Can't miss it. It says, come out for them and be separate. Then I'll welcome you. Then I'll be your father. You'll be my children. It, it could be possible to completely corrupt Jesus' parable and the whole New Testament and say that you can only become God's children by getting your life together, and that God's fatherly love is only for those who have got everything together. He's not interested in you until you've made yourself righteous. But, but that would be to absolutely, completely corrupt all of Paul's teaching and the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus, because it, as Jack, Jack was sharing before, his reasons for, for sharing the good news about Jesus, the good news is precisely good news because you can't achieve it by yourself. We are all sinners. What was, was the word you used? I can't remember. Universally except equal opportunity, equal opportunity sinners. What a, what a great way of deciding it. We're equal opportunity sinners. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room, if you're a Christian, you are a sinner. But the wonderful news of the gospel is you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did, Right? That's the good news, not like, oh, you've got to make yourself better and eventually God will love you and welcome you into his fatherly care and concern. Once you've got it all sorted out, then he'll welcome you. No, he, the prodigal son, he runs out when you're still fresh from the pigsty, when you're still caught in the mud. He calls you, he welcomes you, he loves you. That's the beauty of the gospel. There's no arrogance or that we're better than others. We're all in the same boat, but some of us, hopefully most of us here today watching online, you've received the grace of God in the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. You didn't earn it. He gave it. But here's the thing. 
there is a conditional element. Come out from them and be separate from them. Then I will be. How do we hold that together? Well, I think we hold it together like this. Uh, Paul has said in in verse 1 of his chapter, of chapter 6, he says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I don't think Paul would have written that if it was possible, if it wasn't, if it was impossible that you could receive the grace of God in vain. He's warning that Corinthians don't receive the grace of God in vain. And I think the issue that we're sending here is receiving the grace of God has to change you, right? So um, when I was in, in the army and I was at Kapuka, um, and every Sunday I'd get to explain the gospel. It was the most awesome privilege to, to 99% of people of that 300 people or so we get most Sundays had no idea about what I was talking. So I was always trying to explain the gospel in the most simple and direct way. It was really good to do that. It reminds you about what's really important. And, but I would often encounter people go like, Padre, this is the most amazing news. Yeah, I want to be a Christian. And, and then sometimes... It would be apparent, even in the short period of time that I was interacting with them, that there was a kind of an intellectual ascent, but the change had not really happened in their lives. And I used to tell this, and, and I, I don't know where I got it from, it's not mine, but, but I used to try and give them an illustration. Say, all right, let's say that um, one day I'm walking through the streets of Geelong and I see Frosty. Sorry, Frosty. And, uh, and, and Jono is there, and, and he's clad in rags. It's the middle of winter. He's freezing cold, and he's got the rubbish bin open, and he's, and he's ripping open a, a rubbish bin, trying to find snacks to eat. And I, I go past Frosty, and I go like, oh, that's a terrible situation to be in. And this is when you know it's a story, because I take out my checkbook, an old story. Uh, I take out my checkbook, and I, I said, Jono, this is terrible. And I write him a check for a million bucks. I said, Jono... This is a terrible state you're in. Look, here's a free gift. No obligations. Don't have to repay. Here it is, a million bucks. Frosty goes, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. That's just amazing. You know, really appreciate your generosity. And I love this stuff. And then a month later, I'm walking through Geelong. And who should I see? Frosty. And he's freezing and cold and he's in rags and he's eating out of the rubbish bin. And I'm like, what are you doing, Frosty? Like, what, what did you do with my check? I gave you a million bucks. And he goes, oh, here it is, Andrew. Look, I've still got it. Thanks so much. I really love this check. It's, it's awesome. I was like, but you haven't cashed it. Because if you had cashed the checks, you would not be doing what you're doing now. You haven't received the gift that God's really given you. And here's the point, until it changes you, right? Yeah, and my, my, you can come back at me afterwards if you like, but I would insist that, that theologically and in the gospel, it is impossible not unadvised, impossible to receive the grace of God and remain unchanged. You can't do it. To genuinely receive the grace of God means that you, you become the, the temple of the living God. Jesus Christ lives in you. Your attitude towards the life that you lived is different. Different. You, you cannot say, I'm a Christian. And thank you, Jesus, for what you did. And I love the cross. And I love that your, your presence makes me feel good. But then go back to the life that you lived before. With it. You can't do it. You must come out from them and be separate, as, as Paul speaks here. Receiving the grace of God means that you have a hatred of sin that you never had before. And it doesn't mean that you automatically stop sinning, let's be honest. It's, it's a process. 
Uh, and, and, but the, the Christian life is one where, where there is a hatred of sin because there is the presence of Jesus and a desire to please Jesus and have intimacy with Jesus so that you begin slowly with the power of God to change the life and the way you relate to others and the way you relate to the world. And it's an incremental process. There's a bit of advance and, then a, there's, and sometimes there's a catastrophic failure and, and that's how it works. But the heart, your heart says, I want to come out from them. I want to be with you, Jesus. That's what it is to receive the check and cash it. So when Paul says there's a conditional element, he's saying, come out from them, be separate, then I'll be your God and your Father. What he's saying is, if you don't come out from them and you're not separate, then you're not saved. Now, I know that that's direct, but it's true. Not that you're, not that you're suddenly perfect, but that if your heart is not to come out from them and be separate, you cannot have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So the promise is for those who will come out, who will seek to change. And in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul sums it up and explains it, I think, more fully for us. He says, since we have these promises, what are the promises? God dwelling with us us being his temple, the fatherly clear. Since we have those promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear of God. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers is what we're not to do. What we are to do is to come out from them and be separate, and in so doing, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And in the end, the goal is, Paul says, that we might bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, now what is holiness? Well, holiness is separateness. Uh, there's the, the root of the holiness is the heaviness of God, but it's also the, the, the separateness from God. So it could be if, um, let's say, that after lunch, or after church, the 11 o'clock, I go home and, and I'm making lunch. I normally don't, normally Dana does it for me on Sundays, but I'm making lunch and I'm making some salad, right? And I've got the nice sharp knife out and I'm ch 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 chopping the carrots and then, poof, I chop off the end of my finger, right? And the finger goes from my finger into the salad bowl. That's holiness. The finger is separate now. That new little thing is holy. It's separate from, the, from where it's been, it's been cut off. Now, that's a negative example of holiness, but there's a, there's a separation involved, right? And, and I love it that Paul speaks about that. And this is tricky because in one sense, we are the righteousness of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's imputed to us. It's given to you and to me in an instant. When God sees us, he sees Christ, the righteousness of God. But then there's also the fact that holiness is incremental. It's, it's a growth. It, it's, we've got to bring it to completion. And we have a part to play in it. God working through us, there is, we put to death things. You see, there's two elements here, both of which are important. So, there's the command. There's the reason for the command. Uh, now I want to ask the final question, which is, so what? What are the implications for you and I? Well, um, I began with the example of the exclusive brethren and the Amish. I, I, yeah, I, I think, look, I don't want to be critical, but I think they've both got the wrong end of the stick on this, this command. 
And the reason I think is because it's hard to be salt if you're not in the meat. Um, it's hard to be an ambassador for Christ if you spend all your time locked up in the embassy. It's hard to be a minister of reconciliation, of, of God rec- pleading with the world to be reconciled if, if you don't mingle or you don't know anyone who's not already reconciled. I think it's hard to do. Um, but, but it's easy for me to see the problems or the, I think like the, 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 the wrong understandings of, of this verse it's easy for me to look at the exclusive brethren and the Amish and the Hutterites and others. And it's easier for me to see that because that's not my problem. And you know, gospel truth, it's not our problem either as a church. I don't think we are in danger of becoming so separate from the world that we, that we have nothing to do with the world. I think our danger is the converse one that we become so like the world that we're indistinguishable from the world. So I think when this command, it can be easy to focus on the extremes and miss actually what we need to hear. And what we need to hear, well, let's ask about what we need to hear with our bodies and spirits. So if we're going to put this command and take this command seriously, what does it mean for our bodies and our spirits? So what does it mean for our bodies? Well, our Western culture is becoming increasingly corrupt, and I'll use that word, in this matter of what we do with our bodies. Our culture today teaches that, and we've got to think, when Paul says, your bodies, the context clearly is in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's talking about sexual immorality. That was a big problem for the Corinthians. It's forefront in his mind when he talks about this. He's not talking about you know, cleaning your bodies in other ways. I don't think, I think he's primarily focusing at what we do sexually with our bodies. And we live in a, in a culture and a world today that now teaches that um, many things that we can do with our bodies, which... Historically, 2,000 years of of Christianity has always affirmed is sinful, and and sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage, but now we live in a world that says, no, many of those things are not bad, they're actually good for you. They're to be affirmed and encouraged and endorsed and promoted. That's the world in which we live. I'm I'm not exaggerating it to say that. Now... Sometimes there are elements within the church where we say, oh, we've got to move on from that outdated morality. That's like old school, but we live in a cultural context and we, we want to be part of the world and we want to have a, a hearing with the world. And the world now says that, that many activities, sexual activities outside of marriage are fine and good. And so if we want to get a hearing with the world and we want to understand the world, then we, we're going to need to affirm these things ourselves. And It happens. It happens with Christians. Sometimes it, it happens, uh, we, we, we honestly articulate these things and we say, you know what, you know, they're not sin anymore. Not, not so often though, I think, in, at least in our context. In our church, it's more that we just go quiet and we wonder, well, well maybe, maybe that, you know, 2,000 years of Christianity is wrong. Maybe the way the Bible's always been understood and Jesus' teaching and the apostles, maybe those things just don't apply anymore. So, and look, it's so strong outside and there are all these ifs and ifs and ifs. So we end up just being silent and perhaps deep in our hearts questioning the rightness or the righteousness of God in these things. And why is that? Um, is it that we've kind of arrived at a new understanding of the Bible that 2,000 years of, of Christian teachers and leaders and theologians and faithful men and women just totally missed for 2,000 years? 
Or is it perhaps that we are yoked with our culture and we don't even see it? That the culture has molded us into its image rather than us be molded into the image of Christ? Have we been conformed to the pattern of the world? And do we justify it by pretending that somehow unbelievers in the world will be drawn to us because we choose to become more like them? That's a lie straight from hell. People don't get converted. They don't don't see an ambassador who looks identical to the country that they reside in and go, oh, I want to be like them. People don't look at Christians and go, I want to become a Christian because you're just like me. We only have a message of reconciliation because we have been transformed by Christ, that we are radically different from unbelievers. Our problem is not that we become so different from the world that we can't communicate, we don't live in the world. Our problem is that we become so like the world in so many ways, with our bodies sexually, with our money, with lots of other things, that in the end the world looks at us and goes like, you're just the same as we are, except you believe some weird stuff. It's why in our church, we're to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of our bodies. And we might be a holy people in an unholy world. And this especially applies to our leaders. To people who are given authority in the church of Christ, in the church of Jesus. They need to be living, not not perfect lives, but lives that are holy and on a trajectory towards increasing holiness. Not becoming more like the world in their teaching and their behavior, but becoming less like it and more like Jesus. Which is, which is why, to lighten things up for a moment, I'll, I'll tell you a story. A story, I think, where someone got something wrong and where they got it very right. And this was the story. Uh, so um, before we had the church offices here, I had nowhere to work uh, during the week, and I couldn't always work at home because there were lots of little kids around, lots of noise. So I went to local cafes in Heighton, and I did most of my work in the cafes at Heighton. It was kind of a sweet period in some ways. I had a lot of coffees and way more food than I should have had, I think. Um, But um, that was the only place. So I spoke with Dana and said, so when I'm meeting with, with, particularly with female staff, um, not really appropriate to go to their house or to our house, in case someone's there. So, you know, we'll meet in a public place. So th- that's what he did. So one day, I'm at a cafe in Heighton, uh, laptops open, meeting with our City Kids worker. Uh, <laughs> coffee's on the table. We're going through the program for City Kids for that, for that week. And um, an older lady stopped beside our table. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I be- gradually became conscious of her presence. And I, said, and I knew this lady. Uh, she was from an, another church. And I previously I'd attended, and I looked at her, oh, hello, and then she said this, no jokes, shame on you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, ha, ha. Uh, I thought she was making a joke. And, then I looked, and, and she said, shame on you. You a married man meeting with this woman like this, so flagrantly. <laughs> and I thought, she's serious. And, and I just, I think, I remember it vividly that the poor, our poor city kids worker went bright beetroot red and I think I was the same. Everyone else in the cafe is like, it's gone quiet, you know, like, whoa. Now, I say this because God bless that woman, right? She, she, now, look, her radar was out. Like, you know, I, like, I want to say, what else am I meant to do? You know, like, surely this is, <laughs> you know, this is above all reproach. But in her mind and the morality of her day that was inappropriate for a married man to be meeting with, an un- with, another, with a married woman in a cafe. Just the two of them, even with laptops, inappropriate. Now, I don't think she had a biblical morality, she had a cultural morality. 
which she imposed. So I think her radar was out, but her instincts were right. And, and I appreciated it to this day that she felt that she needed to call out a, a sin she saw in the life of a leader of God's church. And you, let me tell you something, you should do the same. You know, I would much prefer it that your radar was out and you're addressing what you see to be a sin in the life of one of our leaders here as, as a church, one of our staff members. I'd much prefer that your radar was out than you said nothing. Now, you need to be careful. The Bible says um, an allegation of impropriety or sin needs to be t- against the leader, needs to be have at least two witnesses. You don't just take it because one person imagined something like that, that lady did at that point. But there's a, there's a call for holiness in God's people. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that we're not engaged with posture towards the world. It's that we've got a posture towards the world, but we know that that posture and our effectiveness depends on our holiness. It depends on a, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and that depends on us being separate from sin. As a community, we need to have that heart. All right, what about our spirits? Uh, Paul says, seek defilement of our spirits. What does it look like to have clean spirits today? What does it look like to cleanse ourselves? Well, here's one, and I'll be a little bit controversial, then I'll close. Uh, Our world drinks from the fire hose of Netflix and uh, streaming and TV. It's just just the reality. Uh, I saw some stats in 2019 in Australia. The average Australian watches 3.2 hours of entertainment on their televisions every single day. I cannot work out how that is possible, but that's the stat. And that's not even counting what's watched on phones. That's just watched on TVs. 3.2 hours a day. That's the average Australian will spend 78,700 hours of their lives in front of televisions. 78,700. That's a lot. That's 1,248 hours every year. That is 52 full 24 24 hour days of each year. 52 of them watching the television. And, and the stats for Christians in the US where these things are kept, I haven't seen the Australian stats, are that Christians are only a couple of hours less on average. Now, my question is, does that kind of, if, if, if it's correct and, and you watch similar amounts of, of uh, television streamed and other things, is that good for your spirit? It's a question. Um, I asked that question about 18 years ago and of myself. And for me, the answer was completely inescapable. It's not good for me. It's bad. Because the, the culture and um, the, the decline of the culture and the material of the content of those things that I was watching and streaming, even 20 years ago, was not helping me grow with a spirit that was clean and a heart that was undefiled. So 16 years, 18 years ago, I made a decision I've never once regretted. You know what it was? I chose that I'm never again going to sit down and scroll through the channels looking for something to watch. I'm never again going to be bored and try and find something streaming to watch. Never again. I'll watch things and I keep a notebook. You know, someone will tell me, oh, this was a good series or that's really encouraging or that deals with some important themes you should watch or this is a documentary you should be aware of. And of course, there's sport, but (laughs) which is neutral, right? That's neutral. But I'm not just going to do it randomly. So most weeks, and this is, you can ask my kids or my wife, I now watch zero television, zero, most weeks. And it's a decision I've never once, ever 
regretted. Because I know that some people might be able to drink from that fire hose, which has got a lot of filth in it, and manage to remain unchanged. I can't. You might be stronger than me. I can't do it. And I know that holiness is important. I know, I know that I want to please the Lord Jesus. I want to grow in holiness. And so for me, that was a decision I've made. I've never regretted it. Not a legalistic command, but the question I think you should ask yourself is, is the way that I relate to these things like TV and streaming, is it helping me grow in Christ-likeness? Is it taking away from my spiritual disciplines, other things I could be doing? Ask yourself those questions. Ask, is this helpful or is this actually conforming me? And, and you come up with your own answer. All right, I'm going to close. Cleanse your bodies and your spirits. Be separate from them. Come out from them. Don't be unequally yoked. That's hard. That hurts sometimes. You've only got to speak to a young Christian or an older Christian man or woman who wants to be married and knows that they need a Christian partner and hasn't found one, though there's been plenty of non-Christians on the scene. You only have to ask them how much that can cost. Or the person that's same-sex attracted and knows from the clear teaching of Scripture that for them, a holiness, holiness is a life of separation from God and a life of not indulging those desires which they have. Ask them the cost. There's a cost in holiness. There's a cost in coming out from being separate. But the implications of the promise are glorious. That God will be a father to us. He'll meet us in our pain and suffering, that he'll walk with us, that we will be his temple, shining his light to the world in which we live. And these promises, let me read them again, then I'll, I'll pray, invite the musicians up. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, you would work by your word in our hearts. That you would show us the areas where our holiness has become compromised by the world in which we live, where we're unequally yoked with culture. Father, would you help us to, to turn towards our world with love as the Lord Jesus did, but never becoming like the world, never letting it shape us into its mold, never letting it destroy our witness. And so, Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be a church that is bringing holiness to completion in bodies and spirits out of fear, out of the fear of God Almighty. And so we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.